Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Alistair Campbell, and for the first time, I think, without Rory Stewart who has finally, after 150 discussions between us, been beaten by the logistics of travel, and he's currently somewhere above the Atlantic, not able to connect. However, Plan B is, in my view, as good as Plan <laughs> A. I am not going to record this episode alone, much as I would enjoy asking myself, Rory, do you think it's a good idea to abolish private schools? And Rory's saying <laughs> yes. Instead, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by a man who will be our next guest on leading, Fergal Sharkey. Alistair, how are you? I'm very well. So are you looking forward to being my co-presenter? Um, I have to say that having kind of uh, walked off stages and had opportunities in my life to say those immortal words, goodnight Wembley, <laughs> and the number one records, it all pales into utter significance <laughs> at this moment is the greatest achievement of my life. Excellent. That briefly I get to deputise for Rory in some kind of abstract kind of a way. Excellent. Delighted to be here. Thank you for asking me. Pleasure. Well, look, on, when we do the leading episode, which we'll go on Monday, we're going to do your whole life story, <laughs> music, politics, punk rock... And above all, for me, you're, this is why you're going to be on leading, your leading role in the campaign against our government and the world <laughs> Now, lots and lots will know you for all sorts of different reasons, but we put out a thing this morning saying if Rory was unavoidably detained and we had to get Fergal <laughs> Sharkey off the bench, send us in some of your questions. Ah. So can we run through a few? Please, please do, please and do. And then after we'll have a little break and then we've got some of the general questions that listeners sent in which you and I can, can knock about if you're happy with that. First question, we get some very, very influential, important listeners. <laughs> Mr. Tim <laughs> Farron, no less, the former leader of get the away. Liberal Democrats, who says, Virgil, if by some fluke you became a majority shareholder in one of our water companies, what would you do first and ah. why? Oh, you see, that's kind of the thing, because I probably at this point in time would not want to be a majority no, shareholder no. in a water but company. But what would you do if you were in their shoes? Oh, uh, I would actually just go, you know what? I've made £72 billion out of this over the last 30 years. We've left these companies £60 billion in debt. We've absolutely creamed it. We've completely robbed the bill payer. I think these companies can still be profitable. I think we may have to some pain on our way over the next five or six, 10, 15 years. So I'm just going to swallow hard. I'm going to grin and bear it. And I'm going to hang on. And I'm going to do what I'm told. Because in 10 or 15 years time, I could end up with a company that's debt free with a nice new shiny sewage and water supply system. Looking forward to a profitable, successful future. Perfect. Or I could face bankruptcy. Hoggy, I'd like to ask Fergal how he began his activism. And where did the interest in the health of rivers come from, and if he has a favourite river? Uh, favourite river is very simple. That'll be the River Itching in Hampshire. It's a chalk stream. There's only 225 in the entire planet. 85% of them are here in southern England. And I have to tell you, we are treating them abysmally badly to the extent that we are decimating every single one of them. In my view, the River Itching is just perfectly formed and should be the perfect illustration of what we need to try and protect and preserve for future generations. And where the interest came from? 
I've always had an interest in fly fishing. I found myself becoming chairman of the oldest fly fishing club in England. Anybody that's bored at this point in time can now turn over and run away screaming. (laughs) I found myself deciding that I, I, on behalf of the club that I was chairman of, that I was going to have to go and pick a fight with DEFRA, Thames Water and the Environment Agency. Dr. Luke Blazerzewski, how do we excite and engage local communities to connect with and protect their local rivers, particularly in cities? I'm asking as a long-term campaigner. Uh, that one's already there uh, from my own experience, Alistair, and it was one of the reasons, again, I suspect we'll come back to. I began to realise four or five years ago, this country, and when I say this country, I mean England predominantly and Wales, is peppered with local community groups full of incredibly decent people who for decades, uh, in some part going back 30 years, have been trying to look after and preserve their little local river. They've known it's been failing. They know it's ill, but these people are not entomologists, hydrologists, biodiversity specialists. They're certainly not activists and campaigners. And that was one of the things that motivated me when I realised these decent people out there had put their faith in the system and the system took that trust and abused it in the most obscene way possible. Zbris, how long will it take to fix the sewage problem? What should I be doing? Uh, What you can do right now is simply get in touch with your local MP uh, and get in touch with your water company. Voice to them your concerns, your outrage, your anger at what's been going on, what's been perpetrated in your name for the last 30 years. That's what's actually driving this forward. And as YouGov recently discovered, as we speak, 69% of voters now think the water industry should be nationalised simply because of the sewage scandal and the impact it's been having on our rivers. Raise your voice. That's all I did. Neil Ward, all the focus in the national media seems to be on sewage discharges by water companies, but environment agency figures suggest agriculture remains the most extensive cause of poor river water quality. What does Virgil think can be done Uh, about this? Oh, well, listen, that's completely true. Uh, And uh, I will happily say that uh, I made a strategic decision two or three years ago that I could uh, use my resources as one bloke with a mobile phone and a social media account and pick a fight with DEFRA, government, the water industry, the environment agency, or also pick a fight with the NFU and agriculture. And clearly I thought that might have been overextending myself. I'm hoping at this point we have created enough awareness, enough of a beachhead, enough outrage that we can now use that beachhead to start extending out from sewage and going, oh, by the way, did you know that London is on the cusp of actually running out of water? driven by the same greed, failure of regulation, collapse of the water system. And yes, agriculture actually is the biggest polluter in rivers in England. And we do need to have that conversation. Elaine Wilson, does he still fish in the river for him? And is it clean these days? Uh, I don't because I don't get back to, for people's experience, I had this extraordinary upbringing. A young man, 10, 11, 12 years old. I could get on a bus in the centre of town, Derry, And 20 minutes later, find myself standing on the banks of the River Fochan with a reasonably decent chance of catching a salmon. An extraordinary thing, a fish that has just swum 3,000 miles from the Fochan out into the North Atlantic, returned to the river it was born in, and there is this 10, 11-year-old kid from Derry 
trying to kind of shout at it and go, would you mind terribly just biting on the end of this fly and hanging on to it for a small part? Uh, unfortunately, I'm afraid even Northern Ireland has been blighted by the impact of corporate greed and regulatory failure. The River Fawn is now blighted with what actually turns out to be possibly the biggest illegal dump site in the whole of Western Europe in a place called Maboy. The chemicals and the sludge and slurry from that illegal dumping site is now leaching into the groundwater and beginning to leach into the river. And as the people of my hometown are about to discover, that also supplies the water supply to Derry, the town I grew up in. There's a massive scandal there waiting to explode. Oh my God, I thought that was going to be one of the nice gentle ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, has this warmed you up pretty well? Oh, absolutely, okay. keep going. Take a little break, and then we'll come back and you can throw a few at me, but I might throw some of them back Fantastic. at Fantastic. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people (laughs) will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Fergal Sharkey. Come on then, Fergal. Purely because you and I have a mutual friend, I suspect, incredibly glorious man called Lord Dubbs, mm-hmm. who not 24 hours ago got up in Parliament and Catherine sent in a question, what do you think of the instruction to paint over cartoon murals in order to make asylum centres for children less welcoming? I'll tell you what I think of it. I would love to be in a very small space with Robert Jenrick and genuinely try to find out what has to happen to you as a human being that you think that is in any way justifiable. Especially, I don't know if you know this, Fergal, he's he's married to a woman who is the daughter of two refugees from the Holocaust. 
there's a, there was another question we got this week. I can't remember who sent it in, but it said, what can we do to stop the Home Office's performative cruelty? And that's what it is. It's performative. The idea that there's going to be people in Syria sitting there thinking, oh, I've just seen on the news that there won't be any Mickey Mouse pictures if we go to the reception centre. Therefore, that will deter me from trying to get there. I find it utterly hideous, and I suspect you agree. Uh, and the reason I brought up, for those of you that haven't seen it, you will find the aforementioned Lord Dubbs last night challenging the Minister in the House of Lords, and for background, Lord Dubbs came to this country as a child on the kinder transport in 1939. And the minister's response to that one was pathetic. It was astonishingly abrupt and simply saying that government's actual attitude was utilitarian and that these kids did nothing and deserved nothing of comfort and compassion in the difficult circumstances they were in. And on behalf of Lord Dubbs, a plague of locusts upon all of their houses. <laughs> oh, excellent. Rory would have definitely said that exactly the same <laughs> Of course way. he would have. Uh, steve now, there was a Steve one in the music industry. I suspect it's probably not the same man. Uh, you both give us like 17 new book recommendations every week. Slight exaggeration. And you clearly inhale books. How often do both of you, and both of you being Rory, I assume, uh, you actually read? And how long in a usual se- session and at what pace? A book a week, a book a month, etc. I finished a book last night. The book I mentioned a few days ago called Orkney. And I probably had that on the go for about four days. I try and read a one fiction, one non-fiction at the same time. And they're both at the moment written by Labour MPs. <laughs> Chris Bryant, is, actually they're both non-fiction. Chris Bryant has written a book about the state of our politics called Out of Order and definitely worth reading. My favourite chapter, Is This the Worst Parliament We've Ever Had? Uh, and he answers yes. And the other one, I'm reading Wes Streeting's book. Uh, Wes Streeting has written a really interesting book about his childhood. What about you, Fergal? Are you a big reader? Uh, I am indeed. And in fact, ironically enough, I've just finished reading a book Rory recommended, ah. which was to do with Protestant culture in Northern Ireland when he was visiting there a month ago. So was that the book that Rory recommended written by uh, Susan McKay? It Kai? was, and he was clearly heading up into Northern Ireland, and I can't quite remember the context, but he mentioned the Susan Mackay book, uh, Northern Protestants, and it is clearly, it is just cover to cover, interviews, first-person perspectives of the Protestant community and how they perceive and view the world and indeed the last 400 years of Irish history. And as someone who was born and brought up and spent 20 years living in Northern Ireland, brought up as a Catholic with a limited insight into the Protestant community, absolutely highly recommend it. Everybody should buy it. And indeed, some of the current political leaders in Northern Ireland would be well advised to share Rory's advice. Get yourself a copy, go and read it. You might learn something. Very good advice. Now, this one, I have a slight kind of personal interest in this one for professional reasons. Uh, from Georgina Newton, I am 13 years old and I'm an avid listener to your podcast. Clearly a young lady with remarkably good taste. Uh, I am also read The Week and have done so since I was nine. Georgina, I think you're now showing off, my dear. But by the way, big round of applause. Well done, you. Canada recently decriminalized drug possession, and I was worried about the implications of this if it were occur in Britain. I have seen the damage drugs cause, and if we taxed and enabled safer recreation drugs and use and used the profits for rehabilitation, drug safety programs and tackling crime, would this work? Big question. It is a big question, and if you'd have asked me that question 20 years ago, yeah. 
I'd definitely have said no. If you'd asked it me 10 years ago, I'd probably have said no. But I've definitely moved on it because I think the war on drugs has failed. And I do think that we don't even focus on rehab in the way that we should. Now, what about you? I suspect you have more experience of drugs than I do. Uh, we see, funnily enough, uh, music industry for the last 10 or 15 years has worked with a number of charities to provide, particularly at the bigger festivals, to provide drug testing facilities on the simple basis that, you know what, these young people are going to do this. So you may as well actually provide the security that if they're thinking of doing something, they can actually take it on site to a charity, to a unit that will actually test and explain to them the purity or what it is they're about to take, and then they can make an informed decision. Do you want to guess which government this year, for the first year in 15 years, banned the operation of those charities and those clinics on site? Because these kids are going to go and do this stuff anyway, whether we like the idea or not. Mm. And you can, as the music industry, live music industry, I think, was trying to lead the way trying to insecure that if they're going to do that and make that kind of decision, at least it was being done within some sort of safe space. So would you go the whole hog and decriminalise all drugs? Uh, you know what? I probably would go quite a long way in that conversation because you're absolutely right. The war on drugs and inverted commas has failed. And I know some people that used to work professionally in that kind of area in trying to prevent drugs coming into this country. And I suspect they'd even share that same opinion. Or at least they do with me on a Friday night down the pub after three pints of cider. <laughs> uh, very last one, I think. Uh, Michelle Bennett, after seeing a number of high-profile journalists at Gideon Osborne's wedding, it prompts me to ask about MSN director staff to keep politicians at arm's length and surely getting too cosy will lead to soft questioning and not properly holding those in power to account. Well, what's your view of that? Well, the answer is obviously yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wasn't invited to the wedding. Well, that makes two of us. Uh, I don't think I'd have gone. I did go, I must admit, when, when I worked for Tony Blair, I did go to some weddings that I was there not because I was a close friend. Um, now, whether they're close friends or not, I don't know. But that whole relationship is way too cosy. Um, I was surprised at some of the people who were there. I was very surprised that this, you probably know, Fergal, this is the most, you're now a co-presenter of the country's <laughs> number one political podcast. I was surprised to see the presenters of the number two political podcast in the country were there. Indeed. As was indeed the uh, presenter of the Today programme, Mr. Robinson. I think it does make it harder. I think it does make it harder. Um, and I, I'll tell you the other thing, though, that I find about our media more generally is this because there there is an incestuous relationship? There's no doubt about that, um, and you see it in the way that people weave in and out of jobs. Now I went from journalism into into the political side of the fence, yep. but I was never really a proper journalist. I was always a bit of a. <laughs> I was always the political. The political bit was more important, but I think that the the socialising, the the kind of the, the 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 way that they just they spend they go on holidays together they. You know, they just scratch each other's back the whole time. And I, I think it's, um, I think the public have wised up to it a bit. My only comment is I also didn't get an invitation. I can only therefore assume that Mr. Gideon Osborne is not a fan of the undertones or my solo records. And I'm still dealing with which is the bigger blight. The fact he's not a fan of my music or I never got an invitation to the wedding. Did you not know until now that his, his name was not George? I had no idea. Yeah. Absolutely no idea or whatever, yeah. but I guess I'll settle that public school thing and I'm now going to get you started on that again. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> li li like Rory Stewart, we don't believe in private schools, do we? <laughs> we, think they, they think, we think they're a cause of most of the problems in this country. Well, I can name one school that seems to be at this moment in time, yeah, but we'll absolutely. park that idea there. 
Well, listen, Fergal, it's been an absolute joy having you. I suspect Rory will be a little bit worried uh, now that he's heard a proper, you know, <laughs> performer in the role. Uh, but uh, many thanks for joining me. Uh, Alistair, it was a pleasure and a delight, and it is something I will carry with me for decades to come. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed having a new co-host for the day, Fergal Sharkey. He's got a lot of oomph in there, and if you want to hear more of that oomph, then you can tune into Leading when we'll be talking about his whole life and times. And if you can't wait to hear more of Fergal Sharkey, here's a few extracts. Now, I guess your character is key to this. You've obviously got a, a personality that you're driven and you, if you decide upon something, you go for it. I just want to go right back to the beginning. And you've mentioned, uh-huh. you've mentioned Derry a couple of times. You ended up living most of your life in England. Mm-hmm. But how much of a, a Northern Irishman do you feel? Um, but I would listen distinctly because it's what created me. And uh, it is very Freudian, but invariably tell me about your childhood. And in my case, that was quite an interesting childhood. Mm. Uh, my father was chairman of the Labour Party in Derry when there was such a thing. Yeah. Do you think, by the way, do you think there should be again? Uh, oh, I think there should be. Oh, absolutely. And that's ironically enough, when my father passed away, mm. the Irish Times did this quite big obituary. And even in the 1950s, he spent huge amounts of time in this ultimately futile effort of trying to reach out to the Protestant community on the simple basis that everybody needed to bury the hatchet of sectarianism because the industrialists in Northern Ireland were using that division to separate the working classes, to diffuse their ability to make a cohesive, strong argument about pay conditions uh, holiday pay, maternity pay, housing and everything else. And it was used to exploit the working classes in both communities. Now, as it turns out, I could argue that my dad was clearly 40 years ahead, ahead of, of his, his time, time yeah. and trying to make that argument. And he never made the inroads to it. Uh, he was also branch secretary of his local union, the electrician union. I'm still traumatised and probably spend years in therapy about being taken as an eight, nine-year-old child to a meeting, a union meeting, and I'm in a room with 400 other men and my father. They're all referring to him as Brother Sharky. And as a confused eight-year-old, I'm going, who the hell are these people? I've never met any of these. You're not my brother. You're not my uncle. You're not my dad's brother. I have no idea who you are. Why are you calling my dad Brother Sharky? Um, the truth is, in the Sharky family, it wasn't my dad was the political powerhouse. Like all good Irish matriarchal families, that would be my mother. Uh, my mom was massively motivated about the civil rights movement, massively motivated about trying to preserve the Irish language and culture and the arts, and was friends with people like Brian Friel and Shannon Casey and all kinds of people. And it was my mom who, on the morning of uh, April the 9th, 1969, demanded that the whole family climbed into the car. The dad drove us all to the opposite side of Ireland, where as a family, we took part in the People's Democracy Civil Rights March between Belfast and Dublin, protesting against injustices to the Catholic community in Northern so Ireland. So you'd, you'd have been 12? I was 10. You were 10 then, okay. 10, 11. Now, so, just a minute, on, and, and just on your, your names, you, we know you as Fergal Sharkey. You, you're, <laughs> actually, you're actually called Sean Fergal Sharkey. Shan. Oh, bloody hell. Well, you're, you're called Sean Fergal Sharkey, right? And just tell us who you're who you named after. Uh, if anybody knows the song, an Irish song called Shan South from Gary Go on, Sing it, sing it. Uh, 
I'm afraid not even the Restless Politics oh. podcast can afford that excessively modest fee. Uh, Shan South uh, and Fegel O'Hanlon were killed attacking a police station in Northern Ireland in January of 1957, a year before I was born. My mother, clearly without the aid of UltraScan or other aids, clearly decided that if her newborn child was going to be a boy, she was going to name him Shan Fergal in honour of two dead IRA men. Now, what might that tell you about my mother's politics? Well, it gives me a fair <laughs> indication that she wasn't maybe as, as committed to the Labour Party cause as your dad. Um, and how do you feel about that? Oh, well, listen, conversely, it's one of those things that I grew up in a household where it's extraordinary thinking about it. And it, it is incredibly Freudian, but I hope it does answer your question. There was nights in my kitchen that the local plumber, the electrician, the housewife, the local poet, the local school teacher would discuss bringing down the national government in Northern Ireland. And I watched as a 10, 11, 12-year-old child, I watched the local housewife, electrician, plumber, electrician, school teacher bring down the bloody government in Northern Ireland or play a role in achieving mm. that. So I grew up in a house where, well, anything's possible. The other bit, my mum organised this festival called Fish that I call them Kill, which was all about preserving the Irish language and culture and everything else. So other nights there'd be people having mad philosophical arguments about the merits and disdains of how much Seamus Heaney tried to replicate William Butler Yeats and maybe he should get his own gig together. <laughs> so when I reflect upon it, you just go, what an extraordinary household and an extraordinary opportunity to grow up in. What an extraordinary life they've led. And would you say you, sh you, you, sh basic, you, you share the basic politics of your parents? Oh, listen, without exception. Uh, I, there's no way around that whatsoever. And I still have this very simple belief that society has an obligation to protect the vulnerable. And that's kind of my opening game in any game of politics whatsoever. If you want to hear more of the dulcet tones and the passion of Fergal Sharkey, then listen to The Rest is Politics Leading out on Monday. <laughs>